Thoughts Defined by Endo Podcast with your host and endometriosis warrior, Teniela Ogunro. Created for and dedicated to women who have been diagnosed with endometriosis or who suffer from symptoms that they suspect to be caused by endometriosis. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for a weekly dose on everything endo. If you find this podcast inspiring, please share with your friends and family. Let's spread the word and inspire and empower women all over the world. Please note that I am not a medical professional. So whatever I share on this podcast is to raise awareness and inspire. Please always speak to your medical professional before making any major changes to your diet or lifestyle. With that said, let's get right to it. Today's episode is an interview with Dr. Iris Obok. Dr. Iris is the director of the Advanced Gynecologic Laparoscopy Center in Los Angeles and New York City. Her practice, primarily a referral practice, makes use of laparoscopic and robotic gynecologic surgery. Dr. Iris trained under the guidance of two renowned pioneers in the field of advanced laparoscopic surgery, Dr. C. Wiley and Dr. Harry Rich and she is proud to be one of a handful of physicians to use these advanced techniques. Dr. Iris also operates at Lenox Hill Hospital, Mount Sinai, and Beth Israel Hospital in New York City. She is board certified in OBGYN. One of the reasons I was drawn to Iris is her compassionate, individualized care for her patients and her devotion to helping women live a productive and pain-free life. She sees herself as her patient's guardian angel, which you can see represented in her logo, showing angel wings. Focusing on endometriosis, Iris is one of the few physicians who understand that even though excision surgery is the gold standard for endometriosis treatment, the disease requires an integrative approach, combining both Eastern and Western medicine to help patients heal and get them on the road to recovery. In fact, she just released a book called Beating Endo with her co-author Dr. Amy Stein, who we will be speaking to in a coming episode. I have found this book so informative about techniques to beat endometriosis and I really do not want to let it out of my sight. It's that good. There's so much to learn from Iris today and it is an absolute honor to be interviewing her. So sit back, relax and let's have a listen. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for agreeing to grace the show with your presence. Um, but there seems to be a divide between mm-hmm. medical professionals and, you know, people going the natural route and, you know, the nutritionists and all of that. But what I saw from you is that it's diff- you were different in the sense that you were ready to merge both the Western, you know, approach and the Eastern approach as well, mm-hmm. which really, you know, touched me. And that's why I reached out. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I've been digging into your book and I have learned so much already. Oh, I'm so happy. Yeah, I'm I have. So 
Yes. yes. And it's really encouraging that you're doing all you are for women going mm. through this disease process and giving them hope and the tools, you know, to deal with endo and to beat endo. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much. So should we begin? Yeah. So um my questions for you. <laughs> I've got a long list. <laughs> right. <laughs> So from your bio, I know that you grew up in a home where medicine was a calling with Mm -hmm. your dad being a cardiologist. So can you tell us about your background and your motivations for choosing gynecology specifically? Sure. So, yeah, I used to, my dad used to round on um, weekends in the hospital. He was a cardiologist and just loved teaching his residents and loved teaching his fellows. And he would bring me along with him. And I, and I realized right away what a beautiful relationship he had with his patients. It wasn't, let's order a CT scan, let's order this scan and that scan. He really listened to his patients. He really examined his patients and he had a beautiful, he had, he, he's retired now, but a beautiful relationship with, with all of those, um, all of his patients. And I kind of felt like medicine was a calling in general. And um, it's interesting, only years later, I found out that my dad's initial career path was gynecology. Really? Yeah, yeah. And a long story, you know, the story doesn't matter, but that was his initial career path. And um, he's a cardiologist and he's published, I think, close to 100 book chapters and was like a real big leader in. Um, in uh, atrial fibrillation and cardiology. And I just, uh, from a young age, I knew my mom's a nurse, Mm. my sister's a pediatrician. It didn't mean I had to be a doctor, but I felt it was the right thing for me. Yeah. It was like in my my blood, I guess, or my soul. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't escape it, even if you tried. (laughs) I tried and then I came right back to it. So your way of working is first listen, then examine. And this is what many endometriosis patients feel like their doctors don't do. Mm-hmm. So many of them don't feel like they are heard. So why do you think this is the case with many of these healthcare professionals? So I'll tell you what I do, and then I'm going to answer that question. I always review everybody's records before they come in. Okay. Typically a few days to a week in advance. And then when they come into my office, I have a good sense of what's bringing them there. However, I always say to each one of them, you know, I I have a good sense of what brings you here, but what what brings you here? And they're like, where do I start? And I say, start at the beginning. And I learned so much about the words that my patients are utilizing to describe their pain. So if they're saying squeezing or gripping, I know right there there's a muscular component. If they're saying I have these burning feelings and shooting right there, I know there's a central nervous system or nerve component. So the words that my patients describe really help me try and figure out how I'm going to get them better. And I really model how I listen based on my two mentors. So when I did my fellowship, I was so lucky to have trained with Harry Rich Mm-hmm. and CY Lou. They were, you know, the two, there were three big founders, three, four big founders in the field of endometriosis, and there were two of them. And I just remember when I would sit in the room with Harry Rich, Dr. Rich, 
as a fellow and he just listened and he listened and he's such a good listener. And I really strove to be a good listener and I really recognized how much there was to, to understand by listening. And I realized right at that moment that women were not being heard. And it was important to hear because it made me a more astute clinician. Yeah. Pick up the way they were describing, oh, maybe I think there's a hernia in addition to the endo. Let's be prepared for it. Or maybe, so I needed to listen to take better care of them. Yeah. And I needed to listen because I wanted them to trust me because I'm not just any other doctor. So I think the reason to answer your question is, why doctors don't listen to patients yeah. is because of insurance purposes. And it makes me so mad that medicine has become, how many patients can you see in a day? And I know the UK is very different. I do have a lot of patients from the UK, but at least in the United States, it is doctors reimbursements keep getting cut. Okay. So in order to, but, but the overhead keeps getting higher meaning malpractice keeps going up and office rent keeps going up and the pencils cost more. Yeah. But the insurance company is reimbursing less and less, which means then the doctors have to see more patients. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, for a consultation, they have very little time to really listen to a patient. And, but you can't help a woman with endometriosis if you don't listen to them. But I, I, I think that's where it stemmed from is is the insurance and the training is there. It's just like you, it's so filled with misinformation. So I was taught wrong things in medical school. I was then taught wrong things as a resident. And it was only until I started my fellowship, I learned more in my first week of fellowship than I did in four years of OBGYN training. Wow. And doctors are taught the wrong things about endometriosis. And, and, and it took me a very long time to recognize it. And it's because A, there's not many doctors who specialize in endo. Yep. And B, big pharma has a big, big industry with a lot of money. So a lot of the studies that are funded come out of big pharma. Yes. So they're really, they're coming out with papers that show this medicine is improves quality of life or this medicine is better for this or that. But only if you have a critical eye, do you know how to read the paper and read at the bottom who funded the paper? This actually came across my inbox today. I was sent something about uh, one of the new medicines, how it saved uh, healthcare uh, time off of work, which translated to productivity as well as, um, like they made more money, the women in the workforce. And I read through the article, then I read through the bottom, and it was funded by the drug company. Oh, surprise. So of course you know what the yeah. findings are going to be. So yeah. I, think, I think there's so much misinformation because the drug companies are really skewing the knowledge. And, it's, and, it, and it's, it's, there's not one medicine out there that treats endometriosis. They treat the symptoms of endometriosis, not the disease. Yeah. So if you have really heavy periods, yeah, birth control is going to help with your heavy periods, assuming you can tolerate it. It's not going to slow the disease process down. 
and a lot of the medicines have so many side effects, but um, did I answer your question? Oh, <laughs> I went yes. on a lot of tangents. <laughs> no, yes, you did. I, I agree. That makes sense, actually. Talking about diagnosis and diagnosis times, that's also one of the issues that endometriosis patients go through because mm-hmm. it takes an average of seven to ten years before diagnosis. And um, is it true that surgery is the only way to diagnose endometriosis? For me, my personal situation, mm-hmm. I in January of 2018, my gynecologist actually used a scan. Mm-hmm. I did a scan and it was actually seen that I had endometriosis. Um, but I, do, I didn't know the details, so I couldn't tell what they saw exactly. But he definitely mm-hmm. said endometriosis is seen and severe, severe pelvic adhesions. Mm-hmm. So is this, is it, are there some kinds of endometriosis or some stages of endometriosis that can be seen by scan or by some kind of blood test? Or is mm-hmm. surgery the only way to diagnose definitely that one has endometriosis? So... If someone has a cyst of endometriosis known as an endometrioma, that is picked up on ultrasound. Okay. So if someone has what they're suspecting to be an endometrioma based on visual appearance of the cyst, um, then we can say you have an, it looks like you have an endometrioma, you know, mostly, most likely you have endometriosis as well. Because it's, it's not that someone has an a cyst of endometriosis in isolation without having endometriosis. Okay. Okay. Um, was that the case for you? Was it a cyst or was it in your uterus or was it? Uh, so then for for yeah. me, it was um, a cyst, I think on the right ovary. Yeah. Yeah. And also he said he could see something on the bowel. Yeah. And then he could see a fibroid. So those were the things that were mentioned on the report. Okay. So in your case, it was the cyst. So correct. We do see what we suspect is having an endometrioma. And then if you're familiar with endo, it's it's a great pickup by your doc, first of all. Um, And what we do know just by knowing the literature about endometriomas is we know that it's a positive predictor of bowel involvement. It doesn't have to be through the bowel, but it's usually stuck to the bowel okay. because just as, as the pelvis, just the force of gravity, if you have a cyst that's like, like let's say like this, just from the weight of it, it kind of falls and it usually falls behind the uterus in front of the rectum. We call it in the rectovaginal septum. Right. That's just usually where it falls. So it's usually stuck right onto the bowel. So he or she probably could see the cyst and then stuck to the bowel. So usually, you know, so that, that with an endometrioma, that, that is, uh, it, it can be picked up by ultrasound. Okay. In, in my hands, and I think in a lot of specialist hands, I can, by listening to a patient and by um, physical exam, I can say with about 80 to 90% certainty what I would find at the time of laparoscopy. Okay. But that took me, you know, such a long time to learn that skill through my fellowship. But um, the answer to your question is correct. Laparoscopy, we remove the tissue. 
whether it's the cyst wall or whether it's endometriosis tissue, and it gets sent off to the pathologist, the physician who looks at it under the microscope. Mm -hmm. And if they then under the microscope see two features, it's an endometrial, endometrial glands and endometrial stroma, then that is diagnostic criteria for endometriosis. Okay. So yes, it is a surgical diagnosis. Okay. However, um, yeah, cysts are... Okay, so surgery is the, yeah, okay. Yeah. Surgery is the main um, way of confirming endometriosis. Correct, correct. All right. So in your book, Beating Endo, you talk about endo upregulating the central nervous system. Uh -huh. so can you give us a bit more information on how this happens or how does it do this? Sure. So let's take a few steps back so then we can kind of build on it. So typically, like you had mentioned, you know, women go on average of seeing multiple physicians. It's some, sometimes it's seven, eight physicians over a course of 10 years until they're diagnosed. So I like to explain an example of like a little kid seeing a burning hot stove. So if he, that little child sees a burning hot stove, they're going to put his or her hand on the hot stove. Immediately, the hand is going to lift up, right? Because yeah. it's in pain. And the reason the hand lifts up is because the message is going up the arm to the spinal cord. The brain is interpreting that as pain and then sending the message back down to the hand, lift your hand up. It's instantaneous like that. And the, the way I explain it is, imagine the, the, the pain of the endometriosis as a hot stove, because it took 10 years to diagnose it, let's say, in the average woman. So that's a hand on a hot stove for 10 years going ouch to the central nervous system, ouch, 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 right? And that hand has not been lifted. And then what happens is, let's say someone has, because many women with endo have intestinal symptoms. So let's say she has constipation right? Yes. So what happens, they're sit, sitting on the toilet, and what should happen when, a, when a, anyone sits on the toilet, their pelvic floor muscles should kind of relax. They should kind of go, oh, I'm not trying to be graphic, but I'm just trying to <laughs> <That's laughs> just imagine the pelvic floor muscles relaxing, which will allow for stool to pass. Yeah. But if a woman is constipated because of the endo, they are sitting on the toilet like ah, pushing and pushing and squeezing and squeezing. That's further tightening the pelvic floor muscles. So then, and, and in addition, if, if she's in pain and going from doctor to doctor, she's usually assuming like a fetal position, right? I'm going to pull this back um, like this, like this, right? Yes, so the yes. fetal position that we would think would be a comforting position is actually tightening the abdominal wall muscles and shortening those muscles and causing squeezing and gripping. Mm. So then not only do we have a hand on a hot stove of endo going ouch, ouch, ouch for 10 years, but at some point we have another hand on a hot stove of tight muscles going ouch, ouch, ouch. What happens is the hand on a hot stove of the endo is firing and flaring and flaring the central nervous system. So too is the hand on a hot stove for the tight muscles going ouch, ouch, ouch. Then what happens, the central nervous system is just flared. We call that central sensitization. That just means it is just getting bombarded with inputs from pain, mm. essentially. And, 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 and that's what happens. It's now a chronic pain, okay? Chronic just means you've had it for a long period of time. 
let's say for more than six months, just from a definition point of view, but I'm talking 10 years of symptoms. So you have to treat all those hands on a hot stove, meaning the tight muscles with physical therapy, but I also treat the central nervous system. And I treat the central nervous system in many ways. I work with a lot of great um, uh, colleagues. The first thing I always encourage women is to try mindfulness, meditation. There's tons of apps that are so cheap. Mm -hmm. um, like I like Headspace, doing things to kind of calm their central nervous system. And, and many women in, in my experience, some can do that, some can do yoga, but many need a medicine to just calm their central nervous system. Like I've had patients who say, I have so much pain. I put my elbow on a desk and my elbow hurts. Or I feel burning pains everywhere. And if they're using this word burning with a lot of different things, I know their central nervous system's flared. So what I always do, I don't jump to surgery. I love to operate, but I don't jump to surgery on my patients. I try and identify as many of the other things that have been set in motion because of this 10-year diagnostic delay, I treat them first. So I will always first stop for me, for my patients, is pelvic floor physical therapy. Okay. They start PT going into surgery. If I suspect their central nervous system is flaring, I refer them to um, a doc who I work with who specializes in that. Mm -hmm. And I follow my patients sort of six-ish week intervals, and they start identifying oh my gosh, now I get it, that gripping sensation around my anus or that that's my muscle, it feels better. I didn't realize, they think endo's causing all of their symptoms. It's the first domino I like to explain in the chain of dominoes that falls. But I work backwards. I don't jump to surgery because if I jump to surgery, I've taken these two hands on a hot stove now many women will have worse pain post-surgery because they're having a surgery when everything's flared. So I really, unless it's emergent, like if they have a big cyst and we have to take them emergently, that's a different story. Yeah. But I would like to work with them. Sometimes it's six weeks, sometimes it's three months, sometimes it's longer. Everyone's different and different people have different hands on a hot stove. Some people, by the time they come to me, I have multiple hands on a hot stove that I'm addressing. Mm -hmm. And I need to really peel them off and then operate. And then they continue those things. But yeah, central nervous system is a huge component. Okay, amazing. <laughs> so um, talking about endometriosis, so you mentioned the different um, things you have to do and nutrition was one of them. Um, so mm -hmm. the main, one, one thing I've realized is that there are lots, it feels like there are lots of restrictions when it comes to nutrition there's, you know, don't eat gluten, don't take dairy and all of that. And it turns out that many women end up losing weight or being even more malnourished or more confused about their diet when it comes to you know, using nutrition to fight endo. So how can we use nutrition in a proper way to beat endo? Yeah. Love your question. So my first thing to all my patients my first thing to all my friends' daughters is buy organic because particularly with the dirty dozen because they're filled with pesticides 
and those pesticides fuel the already inflammatory environment of endometriosis. The same goes to anyone who has any autoimmune disorders. Mm. You want to stay away from like very uh, like chemical laden uh, vegetables and fruit. For many, you know, it's expensive to buy organic. I always tell my patients. We, we have a place called Trader Joe here where that sells organic and it's much cheaper than Whole Foods or other places. I tell them, buy frozen organic vegetable, I mean fruit to put in a smoothie. That's a cheaper way around it. Or buy frozen organic vegetables, have them in your freezer. Yeah. So, so number one, always organic as much as one can. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens is most endo patients have like sensitivities, whether it's a sensitivity to the environment, it's a sensitivity to food, it's a sensitivity to dairy, it's a sensitivity to wheat. But what happens because of this longstanding inflammation of 10 years, most women develop a bacterial overgrowth called SIBO. And I find that I haven't done this as a study um, but I'd like to actually do it because not everyone gets tested. So it's kind of hard to quantify, but I would say probably 80 plus percent of my endo patients, and that, that's a low guesstimate, have concomitant SIBO, small okay. intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which causes them to feel bloated and nauseated, not wanting to eat. Now, those are overlapping symptoms with endo as well. So I usually, before I will operate, I'll have my patients Um, be evaluated for SIBO. I work with nutritionists, integrative nutritionists, and I have my patients. I have one who I love and I'm a patient. She contributed to the book also. They Skype her. And within two or three Skype sessions, she has really narrowed down the best diet for that particular person. Wow. Yeah. And and, um, her name's Jessica Drummond. I think she's fantastic. But Mm -hmm. from the best diet, I, I I am... very against uh, wheat um, unless it is organic because they're with the whole roundup and all of this stuff that they're spraying the wheat with. Mm. I think that that's just like a chemical that's setting off and flaring yeah. endo and it's flaring every autoimmune disorder and every autoimmune disease. And I know I have two daughters. They, they joke, you know, they know the food in my house is all organic and particularly when it comes to wheat. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think it is so important because, you know, I don't know, is it really the gluten or is it the wheat that is sprayed with all these horrible chemicals? It, I think it may be both. Um, many people are gluten sensitive, but I have a feeling it's because of years of spraying the crops with all these chemicals. So I, it's going to be hard to figure out what's what, but most of my patients, I, I, I don't think we just should say, go off dairy, go off gluten, go off this, go off that. I'm an optimist. Like this glass to me is half full. It's not half empty. So when I talk to my patients, it's what can you have, not what can you not have. And I do a very slow elimination, mm-hmm. but you have to keep everything else static. And it's for many people with endo, gluten is a big trigger for them, a big trigger. Yeah. And for other women, it's dairy. For some, it's both. But I think women are able to keep their, to eat more and not lose weight. 
They're blending it on the endo and then being restrictive, but I think there's a component of a bacterial overgrowth, which is causing them to feel distended and full. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's, it's hard to tell what's what. Yeah. So I think that kind of answers sort of my next question, which was going to be about the dreaded endo belly. Yeah. Uh, because of it, conventional doctors hardly say anything about it. Because I yeah. remember going to my doctor and saying, This does not look normal because, you know, I'm not adding weight, but my tummy is actually really bloated and yeah. hard as well. And, you know, he just said, Maybe try a gastroenterologist. But I, what would you say? Is it the endo? or the SIBO or what causes the endo belly and what can be done about it? Because yeah, yeah it's kind of, one of the- I think in your case, you kind of had the, uh, the, the added ovarian cyst, which was just occupying space and then causing more inflammation in your case. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a combo of everything. And the way I like to get my patients to recognize what's causing what, because I explain it to them. It's like, a Venn diagram. Do you remember those diagrams we learned where, yeah. you know, this is the endo causing these symptoms. This is the tight muscles causing these symptoms. Then there's another um, SIBO. So everything's overlapping when, when my patient walks in the door the first time. Yeah. So then I send them on, I give them a lot of homework of what to do before they follow up with me six weeks later. Whether I do a Skype appointment or an in-office appointment, I give them a bunch of things to do. And typically, like in this case, it would be physical therapy, it would be um, getting tested for SIBO, um, interstitial cystitis, also known as painful bladder syndrome, which overlaps with endo in many women, causes severe bloating as well. So if I suspect they have that, I counsel them regarding that. And then what happens, they come back and they see me six weeks later. And they say, oh my gosh, I used to drink so much carbonated soda and I had orange juice for breakfast. Those are very acidic things. And I stopped that and I can't believe I'm so much better. And then I was at a party and I had a seltzer and my belly blew up. So then that particular patient recognizes, wow, the interstitial cystitis is a big part for me. For other women, it's the SIBO. For other women, it's the endo. For other women, it's all of it. So I have to sort of tease it out. And that's why I do it before surgery. Because if, if a woman comes to me and, wants, and is thinking her endo is the cause of everything, then post-surgery, who's going to go to the gastroenterologist to be tested for SIBO? Nobody. You've taken so much time off of work. You feel miserable. You're so exhausted and fatigued post-surgery. You just want to curl up on the sofa. So it's important for me to get them to recognize that there's these other things. And what I always say to my patients, listen, maybe you get so much better from the PT and the SIBO treatment and the IC, interstitial cystitis treatment, that you don't need surgery. Okay? They usually do, but we've narrowed down their endo symptoms, and that cuts out the inflammation, and then that improves everything even more. So I think the endo belly is getting a bad rap. I think it's everything all together. Okay. It's inflammation from the endo, which causes all of these other things. Okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's talk about um, environmental toxins. I know that's also a big thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, what are the um, toxins and how their impacts on endo? Mm-hmm. For example, BPA found in plastics, and I read something about storisids also having 
um, I think some toxins on them. So can you tell us about them and how to minimize exposure? Sure, sure. Yes. So, so BPAs, so even plastics. Yeah. We've known, I remember my kids are now 16 and 13. And I remember when I first read about plastics, Mm. uh, because I had, my younger daughter had tons of eczema. And I started digging. This is where I started learning a lot about like a natural approach to things. And I started digging into the chemicals and um, plastics are just terrible because what your body is recognizing them as a pseudoestrogen. So your body thinks it's an estrogen and then it's setting off the already inflammatory process of the endometriosis. So it's like adding gasoline to a fire, the fire being your endo, the gasoline being that chemical. So plastics in general, I encourage glass. I mean, I, I have glass. I, you can barely find anything plastic in my home. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I have two teenage daughters, I don't want the, all of that plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, store receipts. My kids know, and I, I wrote it in the book. When, when anyone wants to give me a receipt, I say, could you kindly place it in the bag? And my kids are trained to do that too because the, the chemicals on store receipts have BPA. There's BPA. Listen, there's only so much we can do, but what we yeah. can do within our environment, then we should do. Huge, we should do. Meaning, in in I learned it when my youngest daughter, who's now 13, was like six months old. She had terrible eczema and allergies, and all the doctors said, "Try this steroid, that steroid, that steroid." And I just was not happy with that answer. I didn't want to do that to my daughter. And I started reading about um, common things in shampoos, conditioners, baby wash, you know, uh, that, that can cause bad eczema. Mm. And I changed all of her products to mm. just better products, meaning ones that didn't have parabens and didn't have yeah. sodium lauryl sulfate that were not fragranced. In, in a week, my daughter had clear skin. No way. Yeah, and I, cle- I changed what we cleaned the bathroom with. And then I slowly, it's been years. It took me a year or two to even just get the household products under control. And, and there's a wonderful, have you ever read um, or looked on the EWG website, the Environmental Working Group? Yes, I have. Okay, okay so I encourage that. There's an app called Skin Deep. And okay. I use it all the time. If I'm at, I don't know if you guys have Target in the UK or like a drugstore and and and, boots. Okay. (laughs) And I don't know, I need to buy a new product or my daughter says, I want this hair gel. Right. All you do is you take the barcode and you scan it with the app and it rates it from zero to 10. Okay. That's amazing then. Yeah. And, and it's, it's so important because otherwise you're, the shampoos in your hair, the lotions you're putting on your body, that's seeping into one's skin. Yeah. Plastic Tupperware that you're bringing, you know, it's great to cook at home. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But opt for a glass bottle or glass containers instead. It's just treating, you can't fix endo by changing your shampoo and conditioner and, and the plastic bottles. However, it will help decrease the stimulation of that endometriosis okay okay lovely so one just to ask a quick question before i go on to my next one 
there's no cure to endometriosis, right? But is it possible for the endometrioma or the endometriosis implants to become inactive? Is there anything that can be done to make them inactive, even if they can't be cured or it has to be done by surgery? So you're right in that there's no cure. I do hope that there's a cure. Um, I think excision surgery or cutting out the endo is, is really the best treatment that we have now, yeah, along yeah. with a holistic approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of making them inactive, it just it doesn't work because those implants are still there. And, and, and the, the, you cannot stimulate them. You can stimulate them less than more, meaning by eating organic, having a healthy, low toxic load in your house. Um, so in that sense, you can stimulate them less or more, but you're never going to get rid of that implant. I hope in one day there is some medicine that vaporizes those and they go away and they're gone. Jeez, mm. I really hope that that happens. But as of right now, we don't have that modality okay okay so since excision surgery is probably something most women would need mm-hmm. what other steps apart from you know nutrition and getting rid of environmental toxins are there any other steps or processes that we should you know that you would suggest before excision surgery yeah so in beating endo I don't remember what chapter excision surgery is, but it's one of the last chapters. Yeah, I think it's I went, 12. <laughs> yeah, so, so, and, and I go through, I, there's like an introduction and we talk about a lot of different things, but then we talk about a chapter about the gut. So I talk about treating SIBO and then the foods and so on. Then we talk about the bladder and the things that, like uh, interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome, just different names for the same thing. How do you evaluate and manage that? Then we talk about the pelvic floor muscles, identifying and treating that. And then we talk about the mind. And if someone has anxiety or depression, it's important to treat that also because the same, more or less the same part of our brain that's modulating pain is right near the centers of where we're processing anxiety or depression. So if we're more anxious, it's gonna make us more tense. Our muscles are gonna squeeze yeah. more. It's gonna flare the tight muscles, which will flare the central nervous system. Mm. So it's important to treat as much of that as possible. That's not treating the endo. That's treating all the things that came from the longstanding yeah. issue of, of, of the disease. So. I like to do all the steps that apply to that particular patient in the book and then do a good surgery. It doesn't mean I'm postponing surgery inevitably. For some people, it's six weeks. Some people, it's 10 weeks. It just depends. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Their outcome, many of my patients don't take one narcotic post-surgery. Oh, wow. And, and, and it's incredible to see the difference because all of – what, and I always tell them when I'm operating, my surgery's cutting the endo. My surgery doesn't treat your tight muscles. That gets treated with pelvic floor physical therapy. My yeah. surgery cuts out your endo. It doesn't treat the painful bladder syndrome. That We have to treat that separately. My yeah. surgery cuts out the endo. It doesn't treat the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We have to treat that. So yeah. if we go into surgery with all of those things and then cut out the endo but leave all of the other stuff, there's going to be so many hands on a hot stove 
woman is going to be in so much pain, but it's because of these other things plus the surgical pain. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really encouraging that, you know, you said some of your patients after surgery don't actually use any narcotic. Most that's fantastic because i know lots of ladies that have done five six eight ten surgeries and i think many of them have done ablation Mm -hmm. ablation surgery so can you tell us the difference between ablation and excision and why we should definitely always want to go for excision surgery yes yes however long it takes to wait for an excision surgeon wait do not let an ablationist operate on you because First of all, in, unless they're a specialist, I, I did not recognize until I was a fellow, and I was my fellowship was particularly in endometriosis, that endometriosis can be white, yellow, blue, red, clear, brown, powder burn, clear vesicle. So there's, A, there's all these different appearances of endometriosis. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Most generalists don't recognize all the varying appearances of endometriosis, so they're missing it. And then the few spots that they do recognize, they are very superficially zapping it or lasering it or coagulating it or burning it or ablating it, all words for the same thing. So if there's an endolesion, like let's say the size of my pinky, excision will cut out the lesion, ablation will get the surface of my fingernail. So what happens, this lesion remains behind. The endo's not that big, but the, 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 <laughs> no, no, but it's the ablation now is burning the tip of my fingernail. What does that do? Have you ever left saran wrap by your stove by accident and all of a sudden you see, do you have saran wrap in the UK? It's yes. like plastic wrap? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, I I have left it, unfortunately, near my stove, and all of a sudden you see it shrivel up, right? Yes. So imagine, that's what's happening when the dock is burning. Hmm. It's shriveling up everything, and then it's leaving the whole implant of inflammation behind. So now you already have the anatomy is distorted from the endometriosis. Now it's getting even more distorted by the burning. Yeah. And then my motto was one surgery done right. One ablation begets another ablation, which begets another ablation. One of those ablations is another hand on a hot stove. Imagine, imagine, imagine all these hands on a hot stove. And that's why they need so many narcotics because you're operating on a flared central nervous system. So most of my patients don't need one narcotic or they need maybe one for the first night, Mm. maybe two. I mean, that's typical. And what's really interesting, so I have two components of patients in my practice. I have the patients who are coming to me for pain, who ultimately want fertility, but they're just not there yet. And then I have the patients who have infertility from endo Mm -hmm. and have been, you know, on the infertility, uh, it's, it's for two years, you know, trying to get pregnant. So by the time a doc mentions to them, hey, 40 to 50% of unexplained infertility is from endometriosis, I think you have endo. I think you really need to go see Dr. Orbach for surgery. They want surgery ASAP because their primary goal is just to get pregnant. Yeah. So they're not so, they don't have the time to spend doing a bunch of physical therapy, treating the central nervous system and doing all of these other things. They just want to cut out the endo to decrease the inflammation to then 
improve fertility. Those are the patients who need so many more narcotics. And I see it. It's unbelievable. Wow. It's unbelievable the difference when you treat all these other things. Okay. Have you ever done any surgery where it was the endometriosis was so bad that apart from having to cut out the endo, you had to maybe take out the tubes or the ovaries? Can it get so bad that um, some of the reproductive organs are damaged? It can be, but I can tell that with my physical exam. So if I'm anticipating that, I usually will have a general surgeon with me in on the surgery. Sometimes I have a urologist. So I can tell by my physical exam. Okay, how bad it is. How bad it is. And then from a fertility standpoint, if someone had been trying to get pregnant, Mm -hmm. at least in the States, it's pretty early on in the process, they check a woman's fallopian tubes. Are they open or closed with an HSG? So Mm -hmm. often they'll have the information, oh yeah, my left fallopian tube is blocked. Right. We would, we would want to either remove that tube or to clip it and cut it because it's blocked and it has a bunch of inflammatory debris inside of it. Mm-hmm. And then that's going to spill into the, uh, the uterus and then maybe increase the risk of uh, um, a miscarriage. So yes, it happens. But I will never go in and cut things out mm-hmm. uh, without a patient's consent. Mm-hmm. And I spend whenever... I'm going to operate on a patient. We do a pre-surgery appointment two weeks prior to surgery where we talk about what if I find this, what do you want me to do? What if I find that, what do you want me to do? So we have a pretty good sense of what, I know I have a pretty good sense of what that particular patient wants me to do. Okay. Are there any other questions that um, you would advise women to ask their doctors before surgery? How many surgeries have you done? Okay. Actually, a better way to ask this question is, what percentage of your practice is obstetrics? Okay. Okay. So you're not putting them on the defensive. Yes. And if they say, oh, like, you know, 60, 40, 60% delivering babies, mm. they're not the person for you. Even if they say 40%, even if they say 30%, like, do you want your doc up all night delivering a baby and then operating on you? I don't think so. So I think that's a really nice, kind question to ask. And then asking them, do you you know, what's your modality for the endo? Let's say you see it. Um, what, what, what you can say, do you do ablation? Do you do excision? And then I want to take that to a separate, a second step. A lot of docs will say they do excision, but they just do an excisional biopsy for diagnosis. And then they end up burning the rest. So I really encourage women to ask the doctor that question because I have so many women who come to my uh, office and they say, I don't understand. I just had surgery two months ago, six months ago, eight months ago, a year ago. And my doc said he or she did excision. So I, I always, my staff knows to always get all the operative reports prior to the appointment. So I've read them and I literally read it to the patient. An excisional biopsy was performed. The rest of the endometriosis that was visualized was ablated. And I just read it to them and I'm like, that's, that's not excision. Yeah. So, um, it's, uh, so ask them those questions and, and, um, okay. Yeah. That's okay. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the myths and misinformation out there about <laughs> endometriosis. 
Can you share some of them with us? Sure. Um, there's so much misinformation out there. Uh, and a lot of it is misinformation because of the drug companies. So you have to be very careful what you're reading and where you're reading it from. Probably the best places to get accurate information is the online group, Nancy's Nook. It's a Facebook group. Okay. Um, listening to your podcast is another good place. Thank you. <laughs> um, endowhat.com and endowhat.org. Watching the documentary, endowhat.com, you can download the movie. That's a great source of information. So the myths are the following. Um, if you have pain outside of the month, that can't be endo. That is not true. Women with endo can have period pain. They can have period. They can have pain before their period, two weeks after their period, all month long. Yeah. Endo pain can be any time. Um, uh, an, another big myth is removing your uterus is the treatment for endometriosis, meaning a hysterectomy is the treatment. And that is like the biggest myth of all. By definition, endometriosis is when you have cells found outside of the uterus. Yes. So why would you remove someone's reproductive organs? Yeah. It does not make sense. Mm -hmm. um, that's a big myth. Um, ablation is equal to, to uh, excision. That's a huge big myth. Um, it's not even, you can't even equate the two. Excision mm -hmm. being the better, the right treatment. Um, another big myth is that teenagers... Uh, can't have endometriosis, they're too young. It's absolutely not true. And the statistic is quite astounding that 70% of teenagers with painful periods have endometriosis. Wow. Seven zero, 70. That is a big, huge percentage. Yeah. So I do a lot of like uh, grand rounds to pediatricians. I have one to family doctors coming up this December, in addition to teaching other doctors, because I think the pediatricians, I've spoken to school nurses, hmm. because if you have a young girl coming to the nurse's office month after month, you've got to start thinking endo. Yeah. Uh, other, other myths are, um, gosh, there are so many. <laughs> um, other, other myths are, I'll never get pregnant, because women with endo can get pregnant. Yeah. Um, or birth control treats endometriosis, false. It just uh -huh. treats symptoms of endo. Uh, another myth being Lupron or, or Lissa treat endometriosis, that is false. They just treat the symptoms, mm. okay, with a whole host of side effects. Um, and... Uh, I think those are the... the, the yeah, those are quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and those myths are shared on social media, you know, everywhere. So I think it's good that we begin to talk about them so mm -hmm. people know that these things are not true. And mm -hmm. I actually experienced one myth, which was my doctor said, um, just go get pregnant. Oh, and yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> the correct. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah. So thanks for sharing all of that. Yeah. Are there any other resources that you'd recommend apart from Nancy's Nook and my podcast? <laughs> yeah. I think they should buy my book. It comes out tomorrow. Yay! It comes out tomorrow called Beating Endo, How to Reclaim Your Life from Endometriosis. Yay! Yay! And um, it's available on Amazon. 
Mm. Um, selling it in the UK, yeah. uh, on Amazon UK already um, for pre-order. It's on HarperCollins website. If you click on my website, okay, pop up right away. So my website is www.lagyndr.com, like LA for Los Angeles, GYN for gynecologist, DR for doctor. So okay. lagyndr.com. And there's a pop-up that pops up and it shows you a picture of the book. And um, yeah, and uh, I, I, would, I would arm yourself with knowledge, bring the book to the appointment mm. because it's, I, I'm hoping that this book starts a revolution amongst women yeah. demanding better care because mm-hmm. the status quo is unacceptable right now. Mm. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, so... Um, those are probably the best resources out there. And in the back of the book, I have a whole resource section. Mm. And there's so many. I did put uh, just a few in there. But, that, but uh, I think um, what you've mentioned is probably top of the list. Yeah. I'll put everything in the show notes as well. Right. So this last question is for yeah. me. <laughs> if I wanted an appointment with you, mm-hmm even though I'm in the UK, but if I wanted to see you, how would I go about this? How can I find you, you know, physically or? Yeah. So we do phone appointments all the time for my patients. Um, So you just call my office and you just schedule a phone appointment. And it's, um, it's uh, in my, in my LA office takes those appointments and it's 310-850-0051. And you can pick, get that number off my website. 310-850-0051 and you schedule a consultation. I block off an hour and a half and we talk and I've read your records in advance. I always encourage all patients before they go to the doctor, send your records over way in advance. So that way your appointment time is, you know, I can give you all the information. I've read everything before your appointment time even starts. Um, and then most of the stuff I can diagnose based on, uh, by listening and viewing imaging or, yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Any other advice? (laughs) Um, there is help out there. Uh, it, 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 it's, there's no quick fix, you know? you can get better. It does take time because if there was a long process, we don't need an equally long process to undo it, but commit to it, stick with it, meaning like the holistic approach. And, you know, if you're waiting in the UK for an excision doc for, I don't know, what is it? What's your time frame to get excision there? 18 weeks or more. It can get okay. up to six months. Okay, so imagine all that you can do from a holistic point of view while you're waiting for that appointment. You can change what you're eating. Yeah. You can get the SIBO test. You can you know, look for a pelvic floor physical therapist. There's so much that you can do that's going to prime yourself for that surgery. Okay, all right. Thank you so much, Iris. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been so amazing. I'm so happy and so thankful. Thank you so much for all you do. Um, I read that you are also really interested in helping, like your passion is to help teenagers yes. and you know, young people, which is fantastic because the quicker 
you know, people are diagnosed, I think the better. And like you said, all the hands on the hot stove, I guess there won't be as many. Correct. If, you know, people are diagnosed early. So thank Mm -hmm. you so much. Thank you for not just focusing on, you know, Western medicine, but being interested in, you know, everything Mm -hmm. and all the different aspects of um, holistic and, you know, the beating endo. Thank you for doing that for us. My pleasure. My <laughs> pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Such an informative chat with Iris. So what have we learned today? The first thing to remember is that endometriosis is a whole body disease process that affects our central nervous system and upregulates it. It constantly fires pain signals to our brain. Think of it like putting multiple hands on a hot stove. Dealing with endo requires a whole body approach as well. It requires being able to gently take those hands off one after the other. Pelvic therapy is very important in dealing with endometriosis and we should deem it priority to work on our pelvic floor muscles before surgery and even after. The gold standard of endometriosis treatment is an excision surgery. So always confirm that your doctor is an excision specialist who has a lot of experience with endometriosis. There are lots of resources you can use in beating endo. Nancy's Nook is one of them. She has loads of information on endo, excision specialists, ETC, and keep coming back on this podcast. Use the EWG website to find out the toxic level of your household or personal products. Join online and offline communities that help guide you towards healthier and safer living, such as the Savvy Women's Alliance. Ask questions, educate and advocate for yourself. Don't fall prey to the myths about endometriosis. Pelvic pain is not normal. Pregnancy or taking out the uterus is not a cure for endometriosis. Teenagers and young girls can also get endometriosis. There are things that you can do to begin to take out these excess estrogens from your life. If possible, start by eating organic. Stay away from plastic. Stay away from store receipts. Use glass instead. Study your food and symptoms and eliminate flare triggers. Most importantly, stay positive. Try yoga, try mindfulness, and don't ever feel like you are alone. If you want to read Dr. Iris and know more, please visit her website www.lagyndr.com. You can also call the number on the website. Also make sure to buy her book, Beating Endo, which is now out. You can get it on www.harpercollins.com or www.harpercollins.co.uk and also on Amazon. All this information can be found in the show notes. Until next time, I am Teniela Ogunru and remember, you are not defined by endo.